Well, good morning, New Life. It's good to see everybody here this morning. I hope you had a really, really uh, great Christmas. We had a wonderful Christmas Eve uh, here together. Many of you uh, were here for the services that evening. Uh, My family and I got to to celebrate our first Christmas here in Asheville, and I have to say, I thought I was done wearing shorts and t-shirts on Christmas Day. When I was talking to Chris the same time last year, uh, before we were coming here, he was just telling me about this great snow you guys had, and Asheville was just like this winter wonderland, and it pretty much felt like a kid in Florida. You know, I was where I grew up, I mean, just wearing shorts and t-shirt, we were outside uh, grilling, uh, but it was a nice time with our family, and I uh, hope you guys uh, had a great time as well, and uh, welcome to those of you who may be still visiting from out of town. We're, we're glad that you're uh, here with us today. We're, we're still holding out for some snow. Uh, my kids are excited about sledding, so hopefully in the new year that'll happen. Can you believe it? 2020, a new decade, is just around the corner. The 2010s are just about behind us. So this is our last uh, worship service together uh, for the decade, and we're going to close out by looking at the parables of Jesus one more time. If you're just joining us, if you um, are are visiting with us, or if you've been gone for a little while, uh, we've been looking at Jesus' teaching and specifically his parables. Now, what's that? We've said that parables are an earthly story that illustrate a spiritual truth. If you picked up a bulletin today, you'll, you'll see that it's, it's printed there, earthly story, spiritual truth, kingdom life. So the idea of the, the kingdom of God is a primary emphasis in Jesus' parables. What the kingdom is, what, what it's like, when it will be, who will be there, and, and what life will be like in that kingdom. Uh, if you missed last week, and I encourage you to, to download the podcast, Chris uh, spoke about the treasure of God's kingdom and the infinite value of it. And, and today, we're going to look at a parable where Jesus talks more about the who, what, what people, what kind of person will God welcome into his kingdom. So that's what we're going to look at uh, today. Well, of course, somebody, some people will say, well, well, everyone. I mean, God will just welcome everyone into his kingdom. The problem is Jesus talked a lot about people who were not going to be welcomed into the kingdom. Not everybody would be there, and there's a lot of false ideas that come in about who will be there and who won't. So what did Jesus teach about who can enter the kingdom? What is God looking for? What kind of person is acceptable to him? That's the big question for this morning. What is God looking for? What does he want to see in a person that he would invite to enter into his eternal kingdom? Well, Jesus answers that question with a parable. And this is the last one that we'll look at together. Uh, But this is really the heart of Christianity. I mean, if you get the point of this one today, you get the whole thing. You understand what the Christian life is about. If you miss the point of of this one, you miss the very center of what Christianity is. Uh, Maybe you joined us for Christmas Eve and you're here for the first time uh, on a Sunday to see what this finding and following Jesus thing is all about, well, you're about to hear the core of it. Uh, Maybe you were around friends and relatives this week, and and you guys had some Christmas celebration, and there there was kind of this veneer of Christianity around your your celebration, but you just have the sense that maybe your aunt or your uncle or your brother's new wife just doesn't doesn't really get the heart of it. Maybe uh, they're decent people, maybe they even go to church, they talk about God sometimes, but there's just something you sense that they're just something that's missing, but you can't put your finger of it, finger on that. So today, we're going to talk about the heart of it. What is at the heart of our faith? And it's through a parable that Jesus told. So who will get uh, invited, who will be accepted into 
the kingdom. So that's what we're going to look at. If you have a Bible with you, if you turn to the book of Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, and if you have a, a, an app or a printed Bible with you, open up there. If you don't have one, the words will be on the screens for you. And we'll start in verse 9. Luke 18, starting in verse 9. Now, Luke places this parable just after one that Chris taught on a few weeks ago, the persistent widow, and it takes place closer to the end of Jesus' earthly life, right before he's heading to Jerusalem for that final week. And Luke gives us a really short but a very important intro in the first verse. So we'll look at that, and then we'll look at this parable itself and kind of step through that, and then we'll draw out some implications for our lives. So that's where we're going in our time this morning together. So let's pick it up in Luke chapter 18, verse 9. He also told this parable, so he, Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Now, you've got to love what Luke does here in this little intro. He tells you exactly who Jesus meant this parable for. He, he was targeting especially a certain group of people. He's, it's, Luke says, some who, number one, trusted in themselves that they were righteous, and number two, treated others with contempt. So this was, was meant to teach and benefit everyone, but it was primarily intended for these people. Uh, they, they, they trusted, they had confidence, they, ha they were relying on, they had hope in, in, in what? In themselves that they were righteous. Now this term righteous is, is a really, really big deal in the Bible, it's, and it's critically important to understand this parable. The, the most basic meaning is, is upright or just or fair. It's, it's, it's uh, especially referring to people's relationships uh, with each other or their relationship with God. So these people trusted in themselves that they were upright, just, and fair people. They believed they kept the high standards of, of morally correct behavior. They trusted in themselves that they lived rightly. They were, they were good people. We might call them fine, upstanding citizens, okay? And, and they did what God expected, and they did what society expected. Now, you'll also see a broader term in the Bible, righteousness, uh, this was all over the Old Testament, kind of the fundamental uh, virtue or, or characteristic of someone who had faith in God and lived according to his law. And then it, we see it in the New Testament as well, and, and more than just right behavior, the New Testament emphasizes that, this, that righteousness is right standing in a relationship, especially with God, but, but also with others, and then the behavior that's appropriate to that standing in that relationship. So the, the people that Jesus was, was mostly aiming at with this story, uh, along with everyone else who could hear, are those who obeyed the law, they respected the Ten Commandments, they treated other people well, uh, they, were, they were confident that they were in a right standing in a relationship with God. They thought, hey, God and I, are, we're, we're good. I, I'm, I'm acceptable to him. I'm living in a way that pleases him because of, of, of how uh, I'm living. I'm, he's pleased with me because of how I'm living. Uh, so not only that, they also treated others who maybe didn't live quite that way with contempt. Now, the, the, the dictionary defines contempt as the feeling that a person or a thing is beneath consideration, that they're worthless, they're, they're deserving scorn. The, the other place we see in Luke that this same term is used is of Herod and his, uh, his soldiers when Jesus is going to the cross and how they, they mocked him and ridiculed him. They... they treated him with contempt. So that is how the people Jesus was aiming this story at thought about 
other people. So here, there's the intro. Here's the story that Jesus told, picking up in verse 10. Two men went up in the, into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus says, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Just a few verses, but massive, massive implications. So we're, we're going to look at this parable just one verse at a time, kind of stepping through it, and then we'll make sure some of the, that we understand some of the key things that are, are going on culturally in the background here, and then we'll see how this points to our lives as we enter into 2020. Now, to start with, in any story, we want to make sure we understand the basic facts. So back in, back in verse 10, there, there are two men. It says, uh, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, where did they go? They went up into the temple, the place of the daily sacrifices for Israel. Now, why did they go there? They went there to pray. Now, when, Jesus' original audience would have known when. They knew this happened twice a day every day at 9 a.m. and at 3 p.m. For the daily sacrifices. They did morning and evening sacrifices that were laid out in the Old Testament. Now, religious Jews especially, but, but anyone could go up to the temple mount, go up the, the there's, there's these long, steep steps up to the temple, and they would make an animal sacrifice, a blood sacrifice to make atonement for their sins, to make reparation in their relationship with God because of their sins. And then once their, that atonement was made, then prayers could, could at that point be offered. So when it just says pray, they went up to pray, all of this would have been in the minds of the original hearers because they knew what happened at the temple and when, and when people would go to pray. Now, who were these two men? There, were, there was a Pharisee and a tax collector. And as soon as Jesus' audience heard this, they would have had a very vivid picture in their minds about what he's describing. Now, if you've read the Bible very much or if you've been around church uh, you probably have an idea of what a Pharisee is, and you probably already made up your mind about him in this story. You already think, yep, that's the bad guy in this story. Well, hang on a second, because you're, you're a step ahead of the people in Jesus' day. Th that was not what they would have thought. They would have thought the opposite. If you're not familiar with Pharisees, here are a few things that will help you understand this parable Jesus told. They were something like a, a um, religious party or a denomination within mainstream Judaism. So they, well, they weren't like this outside weird fringe group or anything. There were about 6,000 of them at this time, and they were very influential throughout the nation of Israel and throughout Judaism. Uh, they observed strict religious practices. Uh, they, they, <clears throat> they obeyed the law, but more specifically, they obeyed what their interpretation of the law was, which was over and above. Now, I, I, I read one commentator who, who described uh, how they viewed the law like this. They, they, they thought of the, the law as a bed of roses. And so they wanted to, to put fences around that bed of roses because it was so beautiful and was so perfect 
they didn't want anybody themselves especially to trample on those beautiful roses. So they, they would put a fence around it to make sure they didn't even get close to, to trampling on, to transgressing God's law. So they were some of the most religious people, some of the most respected people. They were some of the most educated people in Jewish society. So they were, they were passionate about that. So that, those, that there are some problems with the Pharisees, okay? But, but let's don't skip past the positive too quickly. They were really serious about following what God had said and the obedience that he commanded, okay? So in, in first century Israel, a Pharisee would not have been a negative thing in the minds of these people. Uh, Jesus did have some bad run-ins with them. He, he had uh, some harsh things to say, but they weren't all negative. They weren't all bad. Um, most people back then would consider them the good guys, okay? So you've got the Pharisee. Then you've got a tax collector. These were absolutely bad guys, okay? So they, they would have thought they were bad guys. If we understand who they are, uh, we would agree with them as well. They, they were basically subcontractors for the Roman government. So think back to your history class in high school, okay? The Roman Empire was in charge of that whole region of the world at this point. They, were, they, were, uh, they had conquered uh, the nation of Israel, so they hired local people, local Jews, local Israelites, to collect taxes for them. And these guys, these tax collectors, would prepay the tax for their area, their region, to the Roman government. And then they had the authority of the Roman government to go and collect tolls on roads, to collect taxes from people. And as long as Rome got their money... They didn't care what they did. And so it was a really corrupt system that, that bred uh, just greed. It, it just became a, a terrible system. And they were hated. They were viewed as traitors. They were viewed as crooks. And in, in many cases or most cases, that was true. So as we read Jesus, just, uh, his parable here, we have to understand the tremendous negative emotion that people would have had when they heard tax collector. They would just think, oh, like tax collector. I mean, it would be like for us, an, an elder or a deacon here at New Life and they're going to a prayer meeting with somebody who's a corrupt IRS agent, okay? It would be like somebody who's, who's, who's leading in kids' church and a, and a crooked politician going into, uh, into a prayer meeting together. That's the kind of thing that, that would have been in mind uh, for the people in Jesus' day. So first, let's hear from the Pharisee, the good guy as far as they were concerned, in verse 11. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Now, before we jump all over this guy, okay, because we, we will in just a minute, but first, a, a couple of things to note. It would not be uncommon to stand and to pray out loud. It, it, a common posture of prayer would be to stand and have the hands lifted up and to pray out loud in this Scenarios. So that wasn't totally out of the ordinary. Uh, secondly, he starts his prayer with this, God, I thank you. Now, some people, when they read this, they would argue he's actually honoring God by giving God credit for the, the righteous life that he is living, the good things God's worked in him. So he's not really being prideful. He's being grateful to God. Now, I'm not totally convinced of that interpretation. Okay, that... that that may have some merits, but even if that is right, we'll ultimately land in the same place on what this guy's main problem is. And we'll get to that in just a minute. But he starts by thanking God. He's not extorting money from anyone. He doesn't do anything unjust. He's not sleeping around on his wife. Nothing wrong with any of those things. 
right? He, he's, it's, it's a little shady when he says, not like other men, especially like this tax collector. Okay, that's, that's a little bit. It would be like if, if we're in here and we're thanking God, God, thank you for keeping us from some really big sins this week. Um, not, not like Bob who's sitting on the third row right here. You know, that, that would, that would kind of be like that. So that's a little bit shady uh, in, in his prayer. Uh, the guy's right there. But it, it's, it isn't just that he has not committed any big sins. It's he hasn't done those things. And then he goes on to talk about what he has done. Look at verse 12. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. So the, the law required only one fast on one day each year, the day of atonement. That's what the law required. He's fasting twice a week, every week. He, he's, he had 100 on the fasting test, and he's going for major extra credit every single week to make sure he gets this right, okay? Tithing. He's, he's not just giving a tenth of what he's getting back to the temple. He's tithing on everything. There are other parts of the New Testament we see that many Pharisees would, would tithe on like the herbs and the spices that they had for, for cooking, okay? So he's not asking the question, you know, should I tithe on gross or should I tithe on net? Like which one of those really is what I should give on? Uh, he, he's not asking, like I did when I was a kid, when, when I would get a Christmas present, when I would get $20 from a relative, I'd say, well, they go to church and they tithe, so this money, this gift from them has already been tithed on, so that doesn't really count. Like, do I need to give 10%? I would ask my parents that, and this guy's not worried about that. He's giving $2 to the temple if he gets $20 for Christmas. I mean, he's tithing on everything. So what's wrong with this guy? What is the problem with him? And at this point, Jesus' original audience would say, nothing. He's doing everything right, and, and he's doing everything we should be doing, and he's doing more. Well, we'll get to the problem in a, mo in a moment, but let's, let's first contrast him with the tax collector. He's the bad guy in the minds of Jesus' original hear, uh, hearers, but, but look at the surprising contrast in his prayer, not what they expected. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. What's surprising here is not that this man is a dirty, rotten sinner. Okay, everyone knows that, and he knows that. What, what's surprising is he admits it, and he begs God for mercy. He doesn't come making excuses. He doesn't come comparing himself. He's not coming saying, well, I'm not as bad as that tax collector in that region who double charges what I overcharge people. He's not coming blaming. He's not coming comparing. He is broken, legitimately broken over his own personal sin. Now, keep in mind where they are. They're at the temple for the daily sacrifice. And as this tax collector sees this animal being slaughtered, He's understanding at least enough of the Old Testament sacrificial system that, that he would understand that that represented a substitute for his sin, that, that he's asking God to apply that sacrifice to him. One commentator that I read, I, I really like how he interpreted this, uh, this prayer. He, he's saying that, that in effect, the tax collector is praying this. He says, God, make that sacrifice effective for me. Apply that innocent blood to my guilty soul. I know I deserve to die for my sins are great and oh, how I hate my sinful heart. Make that sacrifice effective to me. 
Be merciful to me, Lord God. He stood far off. He wouldn't even look up and he begged God for mercy, not on the basis of his own goodness because he knew he didn't bring anything to the table. But instead, he, he trusted in God's commitment to be merciful to sinners through these sacrifices and that substitute. And then Jesus delivers the main point and it was a shocking bottom line finish to this story for his original hearers. He says this, verse 14, I tell you, this man, meaning the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And as these two men go down back from the temple to their homes, Jesus' audience would have thought, well, the Pharisee, obviously, the super righteous guy, he's the one who's good with God. But he was not. It was the tax collector. Well, there are, are dozens of implications from this parable, but in the remaining time together, I just want us to focus on a couple of things. Uh, th this parable answers a big question. How can a sinful person be accepted by God? What, what is it that God's looking for? Jesus told this story to illustrate what kind of person can enter the kingdom. Well, the answer is not what Jesus' audience thought it was going to be, and it's not what's really obvious to us either, but the answer is the heart of, of Christianity. So we'll look at the answer in two steps. First, there's a prerequisite. So we'll number that one zero because it's kind of like a, a, a pay to play, okay? This is, this is a prerequisite of something you get, uh, you have to have before you get to the main thing, okay? Then we'll get to the main point. So it's really just a one-point sermon, okay, with a, with a little prerequisite. So how can a sinful person come into a right relationship with an infinitely holy and a just God? What's God looking for? Well, Christmas Day has passed, and you probably opened all your gifts, uh, but in case you didn't get everything you wanted, uh, or you wanted one more shot, I've got, I've got two gifts here, and I, I need a volunteer to uh, help me with this, and it, there's only going to be, there's no, no, nothing bad in here for you, so it's not anything to be scared about. Is anybody, maybe from over this section, wants to volunteer? Is that you? Come on up. Is that, is that Illy? I can't even see. Illy, come on up. All right. Illy, have we met before? Yes. Say no, say no. No, no we've no. not met before. And do you know what's going to happen here? No, I don't. No, you don't? No. Okay, well, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. You're going to have a Christmas present. Okay, cool. Okay, you get to choose one of these two. So just point to the one you want, and it will be yours. Whatever's inside, you keep. You can even keep the box and the bow and everything. The other one, I'm sorry, you don't get. So take your pick. Which one would you like? This one is... I wrapped this one. This is, I honestly did wrap a few gifts kind of like this this year. Um, it's it's going to be opened anyway, right? Uh, my wife uh, wrapped this one, so it looks a little nicer. But you have an idea which one you want? Yeah. Which one? You want this one? Yeah. Okay. Let's see what Illy got here. It's not very big. It's okay. It's okay. Oh, snap. Oh, snap. What is it? It's an, Amazon it's an Amazon gift card. And it's an Amazon gift card for between $25 and $200. So I'll let you guess how much is on there. Um, <laughs> but that's yours to keep. Let's give Illy a hand. Oh, wait, 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 wait. You're not done yet. Oh, okay. Let's see what would have happened. You don't get to keep this one. Okay. You don't get to keep this one. But let's see what would have happened. Can I open it? Had you, yeah, you can open it. You just can't keep what's inside. Okay. okay. You say that's fine now, but... Yeah. I don't want to leave everybody guessing. 
And there's what? Nothing. Nothing inside. Let's give Ilya a hand. Well done. <laughs> Ilya, if you didn't get everything you wanted for Christmas, if it's under $25, you have one more chance. Okay. Now, <clears throat> this box, Ilya's been listening to the sermon, so she knew which one to pick. This box didn't look like much on the outside. Um, she chose wisely because we had, we had two boxes. How many Christmas gifts did we really have? We didn't have two. We really only had one. Because what makes a Christmas gift a Christmas gift is what's on the inside. The outside, pretty, ugly, anything in between, it doesn't really matter because that's what makes a Christmas present. So here's the point. It's what's on the inside that counts. That's what God is looking for. He's not concerned with what things look like on the outside. He's looking on the inside, and what he's looking for is a humble heart, a heart with the humility before him to admit our sin and to recognize our need for him. The Pharisee, in his prayer, he used the word I five times in his two-sentence prayer. Look, look at what I've done. Look at what I am. And what need does he have for God? He's done it all already. He's, he's worthy. He's righteous. He's already good enough. The tax collector, on the other hand, he knows what he needs. He needs God's mercy, and he's broken over his sin. So that's the prerequisite, is humility. I, I like this little definition of humility. You'll see this on the screen. It says, humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. And that was the state of the tax collector's heart. I just want to ask, is, is that the state of your heart this morning? What posture is on the inside? Are you standing proud because you think, you know, I'm, I'm pretty good. I feel good about myself going into 2020. Or are you broken over the sin that's in each of our lives. Listen to what God says in, uh, through Isaiah in uh, Isaiah 57, verse 15. He says, For thus, thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who ha inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell, he says, I, I dwell in two places. I dwell, number one, in the high and holy place. And number two, also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. In the New Testament, Peter says this in 1 Peter 5. He says, All of you must clothe yourselves with humility in your dealings with one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you in due time. And Jesus, just a few chapters earlier in Luke in chapter 14, he says, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. It's no coincidence that the very next story that Luke tells in his gospel after this parable is the story of people bringing children, bringing infants to Jesus. And the disciples, they're kind of shooing them away. And, and this is what Jesus says in verse 16. He says, let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So if you recognize 
how needy you are for God. And you have the humility to admit your sin, and not just other people's sin, but your own, then you're a good candidate for his kingdom. You see your need for his mercy. And you may look okay on the outside, or you may not look too good on the outside, but that doesn't matter because it's what's on the inside that counts. So the prerequisite, what God is looking for, is humility. How can a a sinful person be accepted by God? Now here's the point. The main point of this parable, the main point of of Christianity, really. If you you get this, you get the heart of it. Uh, Look back at verses 9 and 14, the first and last verses that kind of serve as two bookends on this story, okay? Uh, We get a clue to the main point of this whole thing. In in verse 9, the phrase, trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Now, we've looked at this word righteous, and we we said it it was upright, just, fair, and we said that righteousness is more than just behavior, but being in a right standing in a relationship with God. And then in verse 14, the term justified. Now, justified means declared righteous. So who was declared righteous when they went down to their houses? It was the tax collector and not the Pharisee. Uh, uh, Declared to be righteous and therefore accepted in God's sight. So justification is a word you may hear based on this word justified. It's, It's God's declaration that we are in a right standing with him, before him. We are righteous before him. So what, what's going on with all this kind of courtroom legal terminology? Let, let's, let's picture it this way. Picture that we are in a courtroom together, and it's not like in downtown Asheville, okay? This is the courtroom, God's courtroom, and he is the ultimate judge. So we're in his courtroom, guilty sinners, every single one of us in this room, a guilty sinner, mountains of evidence against us, and after everything is presented, the judge, God himself, He renders the verdict. He says, not guilty. He says, righteous. I declare you are righteous. You have a right standing in a relationship with me. You are acceptable to me. And and we don't just get to leave the the courthouse as free people. We get to go to the judge's house for a feast. A party, the party to end all parties, like Chris talked about the parable a few weeks ago. Why? How can this happen? What is the ground for this this verdict of not guilty? What's the ground for this verdict of righteous and being invited into his kingdom? The answer is that we don't trust in ourselves that we are righteous. Rather, we trust in Jesus Christ alone as the ground and the basis for our being justified, our being declared righteous. We don't trust in anything we are. We don't trust in anything we do. We don't trust in anything that we don't do. Where do we look? We look totally away from ourselves in anything decent or commendable about us, anything in us, and we trust in him. And at that point, the scripture tells us that a union is established with Christ. At that point, we are what the Bible calls in Christ. So when you're reading the Bible and you, and you see in him or in Christ, don't skip over that. That is so important to what's around that. Now, if, if I could change this, uh, the representation of this box a little bit, if this box represents each of us, okay? And then this bin down here, this represents Christ and his righteousness, okay? So 
what, what the Bible teaches us is that if, if we are in Christ or in him, then God the Father sees it this way. He does not see us. He does not see our sin. He sees us in Christ. He sees us with the righteousness of Christ if we have trusted in him, looked away from ourselves, and we are in him. He sees Christ's righteousness. He sees his obedience that's counted as ours. The, the theological term is imputed. It's imputed to us. It's not ours, but it's given to us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it this way, God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, that's why the story does not end at Christmas. I read something this last week that basically said it this way, that baby Jesus didn't save us, right? Like, why was it necessary for Jesus to live 33 years? Why couldn't it have happened sooner? Or why couldn't he have, have come to earth as a full-grown adult and then taught a few things for a week or so and then gone straight to the cross? It's because the Jesus who was a baby and then a toddler and then went through childhood and went through adolescence and then young adulthood and then as a fully grown man, he lived a perfectly righteous life through all of those stages. And in relation to God the Father and in relation to other people, he had a perfect record of righteousness that now can be counted or credited to us if we have faith in him, if we've trusted in him. And so God the Father then looks on us and he sees Christ's righteousness instead of our sin. The old Puritan theologian, uh, John Owen, uh, he, he would say it this way, that if we're in Christ, then God loves us, he delights in us, he's well pleased with us, and only has thoughts of kindness toward us. Why? Why? not because of anything in us. It's because of Christ alone and that we are in him. So Christian, do you realize that no matter how moral you are, how righteously you live, how, how religious you are, how good you are, it is not the, the basis of your justification before God. That is not how you are declared righteous in God's law court and accepted into his kingdom. By trusting Christ alone and all he did for us, we're united to him, and because we're in him, what he did counts for us. So how can a sinful person be accepted by a holy God? It's by trusting in Jesus alone, his righteousness, not our own righteousness. So where does all this land us? Uh, if, if you read this story and you identify really more with the tax collector than anything else, well, there, there's hope for you because you know you've blown it. You, you know you could never be accepted into God's kingdom because of who you are or what you've done or what your life looks like. And, and you're not here comparing. You're not here making excuses. You're saying, I'm unworthy. And you know you've lived far from God. You've lived outside of his mercy and you need his mercy. If that's you today, you are really close to his kingdom. Look away from yourself. Don't trust in yourself. 
look to Jesus, trust in his righteousness, ask God to apply his sacrifice to your life to give you his righteousness as the payment for your sins and, and to give you his righteousness for the, the perfect life that he lived that can be applied to you. If you read this story and, and you're more like me and, and you identify with the Pharisee more so, well, there's hope for us too. Uh, here, here's the deal. I mean, I don't, I don't say this out loud a whole lot of times. I, I, I have it in the back of my mind maybe that, that you know, I'm, I'm a pretty good person. You know, I, I mean, maybe you have the same thought about yourself. I mean, I, I treat people pretty well. You know, I do my best to, to do that. Um, if somebody gives me too much change, I'll, I'll take that back and, and try to make it right. Um, I'm not, I'm looking to stay faithful to my wife as, as best I possibly can every day. I mean, I give regularly to the church. I give to things outside the church. I read my Bible almost every day. Pretty much a modern day version of what, the, of what the Pharisee said in his prayer at the temple. Now, are any of those things bad in and of themselves? No, they're, they're all good, at least on the outside. But here's the question. Am I trusting that because I live that way that I'm righteous? Am I trusting that God will accept me because of the way that I'm living, the things that I'm doing imperfect as they are. Now, there's a whole another sermon on all the sins that are, could be going on under the surface in all of that, but what am I trusting in? And with that, remember in verse 9, they treated others with contempt. How am I viewing, how am I thinking about, and how am I treating other people? Well, I'm not explicitly every day saying all these negative things about people, uh, but do I ever look at people and think, well, I'm a better parent than that. You know, I was in Walmart yesterday, and I thought that a lot, okay? <laughs> Do I ever think, well, I'm a harder worker than that person? Well, I'm a better husband than that guy. Do I have the thought that I'm a more generous person than that stingy person? Well, I haven't given in to the same sin that they've given into, I've kind of got my stuff together. I say those things in my head more often than I'd like to admit. And yet here I am, I'm reading this Pharisee's prayer and, and I'm laughing just thinking how ridiculous he is. I mean, he knows better. I'm, I'm ridiculing him and what did I just become in the process? Toward the Pharisee. I became the Pharisee. There's a great book title by a guy named Larry Osborne. It's called Accidental Pharisee. The basic idea is, look, you just started following Jesus. You loved him. You wanted to take the Bible seriously, and you wanted to, to obey God. But somehow in that pursuit of following him, you accidentally ended up being like a Pharisee. And when we realize we're going down that path, we, just, we need to confess our self-righteousness to God and over and over again, look away from ourselves and what, what we're doing and what we've done and saying, God, I'm, I'm following you and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to obey you out of gratitude and my love for you, but that is not the ground for my acceptance before him. And that doesn't make me better than anyone else. It makes me the recipient of God's grace. And we need to turn back to Jesus as the only ground for our acceptance 
before God, the fact that we are in Christ and ask God to help us have more humility towards him, more humility toward other people and recognize how much mercy we have received from Jesus. Whether you're more like the tax collector, whether you're more uh, like the Pharisee, let me encourage you with this as we close. Uh, that You may blow it big time. Uh, you may blow it in more subtle ways, but in our daily struggle against sin, we've got to remind ourselves that our standing before God is not based on ourselves, but it's based on Christ alone. So unless Jesus comes back in the next few days, your struggle with sin and my struggle with sin will continue into 2020. And when we sin, and when we rightly feel like a failure, as a parent, as a spouse, as a friend, as a child of God, what are we going to do? What are you going to do? Will, will you look at yourself and will you look at your sin and will you feel down and depressed or will you look to Christ and the righteousness that he has performed on your behalf and recognize how God sees you? When you live righteously, when you do well, when you feel like a success, what are you gonna do then? Will you look at yourself and trust that you're righteous or will you look to Christ and the righteousness that is yours in him and as that is the only basis for how you have a right standing with God he's done everything that was necessary to grant us that right standing with the father he paid the penalty for our sins he offers his righteousness to anyone who will look away from themselves and look to him with a humble heart so wherever we see ourselves in this parable, wherever our struggle with sin is, however we're, we're approaching God and, and however we are interacting with other people, thinking about other people, we need to turn back to him and turn to his righteousness. Let's pray together as we close our time. Heavenly Father, um, we recognize through this story and through your word that um, without Jesus, each and every one of us, we're, we're just, we're dead in the water. We recognize that while any number of us in this room would, would have positive aspects of their lives, um, and we've, some of us, made progress in our obedience towards you and, and, and in our personal holiness, uh, Lord, we, we cannot take credit for any of those things. And we still see the sin that is in our lives and the more subtle things. And for some of us, we, we see really big things and we even wonder, could, could you forgive that? Could you have mercy on that? And so we thank you for the, the death of Christ on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. And we thank you for the, the 33 years of his perfect life that you will give as a gift to us so that we can have right standing with you. So I pray for those of us in this room who have not trusted in you um, for, for that salvation, for that righteousness, for that forgiveness, that, that today would be the day that they would make that final step and receive your mercy and receive your gift of right standing with you. For those of us who, who are your children and we followed you for a few weeks or months or for a few years or decades, would you call us back to yourself in whatever ways uh, we are struggling right now, that we're sinning right now, 
And would you help us to see how you view us in Christ and let that be a great motivation for us to love you more, to obey you more, and to be increasingly humble as we do those things. Thank you for your word. Thank you for how it it teaches us. And thank you for how um, you work in our lives through it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, let's stand. Let's sing together.